This episode is brought to you by the Elite Academy, formerly known as hrvcourse.com. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com academy. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your host, Jason Moore. And today joining us is Dr. Diana Driscoll. Diana, welcome. Thank you, Jason. It's such an honor to be here. I'm excited. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very excited because it's uh, not very often that I get the chance to dig into the nervous system with somebody who potentially can take it even further than me. And so... Um, I'm a big nerd for that subject, and right before we hit record, uh, you had said something like, um, you know, that you like to get really nerdy on this subject, too. (laughs) Yes, I do. This is where I got answers, and I think that innate nerdiness actually turned out to be a benefit. Who knew? (laughs) Who knew? And so for folks listening, um, Diana is an optometrist and clinical director, Uh, and she's an EDS patient who recovered from POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and as have her children. And she and Richard Driscoll began studying POTS, running a lot of clinical trials and looking at treatment for POTS. But uh, what I really want to highlight from this is that Um, she has really dug into and become intimately familiar with not only POTS, but chronic fatigue, brain fog, immune system decline, gastroparesis, uh, temperature regulation. And then there's another kind of quote that you can find in her about page that says invisible illnesses. And so um, I think that between the invisible illnesses and the nervous system and the vagus nerve and inflammation, we're going to have a lot to unpack together today. That is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm excited because also right before we hit record, you know, we were kind of getting a feel for who is going to benefit the most from this type of conversation. And one might assume that it's people that only have some type of extreme chronic health condition or something. But you kind of shared with me that it would, it, this does this type of discussion does definitely help those folks, but it also applies to people who are just trying to live kind of a normal, healthy, and well life, as well as even people who are trying to push their performance a little further, whether that's kind of in the business or cognitive realm or in the sports realm as well. And so that's right. Yeah. My my presentation was so dramatic and my kids and I were so incredibly ill. 
that is the reason I had to find answers. If I had been mildly affected or had some issues that I was, I was able to push through due to age or stress or whatever, I wouldn't have been motivated to dig that deep. So the lessons I walked away from in my recovery, I realized can help so many other people too. And we want to be proactive in our health, right? So totally. Yeah. That's, um, you know, that's something that all, myself and all the listeners of the show can really appreciate is trying to take kind of control of your situation and try to steer the boat towards a more favorable future. Um, and it, you know, getting to know you a little bit, it sounds like you were healthy for most of your life, but that there were some turn of events that kind of led you down a darker path. What can you unpack that a little and what led you towards all of this? Sure. Um, I was 46 years old and busy optometrist, successful, doing well. But I went on a mission trip to Costa Rica and I cannot blame Costa Rica. Costa Rica was beautiful. And everybody got a virus, the same virus, but I didn't seem to be able to pull out of it. They, They recovered and I didn't. And the symptoms started to morph from more of the upper respiratory problems to then food would just sit in my stomach sometimes. Um, My blood pressure would go all over the place. My heart rate, I couldn't control it. Uh, I noticed it was fairly positional. And then I started to develop headaches, neck pain. I had a tremor, horrible insomnia, and uh, eventually was diagnosed with dysautonomia or a dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. But the or POTS was um, also called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which should mean that when I'm vertical, my heart goes fast, which it did. But it should also mean when you sit down, you should be fine. And I wasn't. I was sick in any position, and no one could figure it out. Jason, I went to fifty doctors for three years. I went. Mm. I was in clinical trials on this. I thought they'll figure this out and. No, they just had no idea. They thought maybe we're just more self-aware of our own body. Maybe it was anxiety. And when my son became so incredibly ill, he was eight years old, we had to pull him from school three years, completely disabled. And then he started wasting away, developed severe osteoporosis. So we were on a mission to get answers. No one could help us. It was scary. That sounds really scary. Yeah, it's what having a nine-month-old baby now. um, I can definitely, you know, when it's your child, it seems like it just elevates the situation to another level. But um, it does. It it kind of put me in the position of being the most motivated person ever to get answers. It was a very scary time, but that kind of lit the fire too. And so what were uh, some of the symptoms that were, were you and your son both having the same type of symptomology or what kind of were you experiencing again? Some things were the same and some were different. And my daughter also developed POTS, but she was able to stay in school. Um, So I felt like I was flooded with adrenaline. I was shaking. If someone like tapped me on the shoulder, I'd jump three feet in the air. My resting heart rate, I remember, was 123. And that was as low as it would go. So that surge of adrenaline was horrible. My digestion started to be affected. And 
at first food would just sit in my stomach, then it kind of evolved to constipation most of the time with episodic diarrhea that I'd be really excited happened because then at least I could get something out of there. That was horrible. Um, I, I just started to develop what I call brain fog. It felt like I was thinking through oil, if you will. It wasn't sharp. And then over time, that evolved into basically a complete loss of short-term memory. Um, I had no executive function. I couldn't organize my thoughts or make a to-do list. And um, what evolved from extreme insomnia turned into I couldn't stay awake. At my worst, Jason, I was... Gosh, I was awake maybe three hours a day. And those three hours, I wanted to be asleep. That was a real scary time. I, I started hallucinating sometimes. Um, my son, however, started fainting. That was his first symptom. And then he ultimately got to the point where he was wasting away. Uh, the severe osteoporosis was scary. He broke his arm just throwing a ball or or putting on his coat. His growth stopped. We are keeping a chart, and that stopped. And yet no one could figure that out. And then my daughter, who had POTS too, she had more of this anxiety, depression thing. And if you had her try to stand still, she couldn't do it. Her heart would start racing, but she didn't seem to exhibit in the same way. So all three of us had POTS. Um, all three of us presented differently. And all three of us had some different underlying problems causing it. So it wasn't easy. <laughs> I wish it was really straightforward. We had some commonalities, though. And that's where we started. It's an amazing story, and I appreciate you sharing that with us because I know it's probably somewhat painful to think back on, but at the same time, amazingly, here we are having this conversation, and your journey has changed quite a bit over the years since then. Um, Absolutely. It's amazing. So uh, just first of all, you know, from a personal standpoint, congratulations on being able to dig out from under that. I am can't imagine the load uh, that, it, that it was like to have all of that. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, honestly. It was not quick. It was not easy. I was on disability over a decade. So, um, but it was extraordinarily complicated. And Take some time. And I know that you uh, kind of mentioned to me when we were kind of discussing about coming on the show that part of your journey involved the vagus nerve, which is obviously very interesting to me and very interesting to a lot of our listeners due to its relationship with heart rate variability. And, and people think of it as, uh, you know, an important part of, um, controlling your breathing and parasympathetic function and other people uh, might think of it as something that's important for recovery from exercise and things like that. But how did the vagus nerve play into your journey? Right. When I was trying to figure out what, what the heck happened, you know, I remember writing down my symptoms and gosh, there were times I'd have 50 to 80 symptoms and they seemed to affect every aspect of my body. But I was trying to look at them and cluster them. Um, what could tie some things together? And I remember my heart rate 
and my gut symptoms started to occur at about the same time. And when I was working through this, I thought, what would tie together the heart and the gut? That well, the vagus nerve does. And um, then kind of keeping that in mind, I, I remember going to my doctors and saying, I'm trying to figure out if the vagus nerve is involved in some of this. They they didn't seem to know what I was talking about. It was the strangest journey, Jason. I remember even my cardiologist said, well, we don't have to rely on basic anatomy like that. You know, ask your neurologist. And oh, I, I felt like I was in the twilight zone, but I felt like this could be part of it. So um, as you mentioned, the vagus nerve is so important. It's the longest cranial nerve in the body. But interestingly, it's also the anti-inflammatory nerve. And uh, that was Dr. Kevin Tracy's work, figuring that out, but it's hugely important. But thinking about what the vagus nerve controlled, everything from oh, stomach acid reduction to opening the valve at the base of the stomach to allow those contents to exit, uh, peristalsis or movement throughout the GI tract, I certainly was losing that. Interestingly, it, it tells the gallbladder when, when food's coming to kick out some bile to help with digestion and it nudges the pancreas to kick out digestive enzymes. The, the doctors had found that my gallbladder wasn't working. Mm. And uh, the ejection fraction was 8%. And so they said, you know, we need to remove that. And I remember working through that part of the problem saying, well, is it filled with gallstones or something? And no, that was fine. Is it infected like an appendix where it's going to blow or something? No, no. Everything looked fine. And in my mind, I thought, that sounds neurological to me. And I wanted some time to think this through so I could maybe save that mm-hmm, organ. Definitely. And, Life is a little easier with your gallbladder. So that was some of the thought process I had initially. But what really forced my hand, Jason, was I got to the point where I had complete gastroparesis. I mean, nothing was moving. And that on top of being so sick is just kind of miserable. Uh, it, I went everywhere. I went to my doctor. I tried everything myself. Couldn't, I just couldn't have a bowel movement. Um, I was in the emergency room. I was referred to a urologist thinking um, my doctor thought maybe I had a kidney stone. The urologist, though, was able to confirm my suspicions when I showed him if this was a vagus nerve problem, could some of this gastroparesis be an ileocecal valve problem? And that's the valve between your large and small intestine. And he was able to confirm, yep, that's what it is. Um, That valve is not opening. He had given me some dye to drink to look for stones, and days later it was still there, but it was right up against that valve. So having gone to every doctor I I knew of to go to for help and still suffering with this, I started to think it through. What am I going to do? Let's just assume I'm right. Let's just assume it's my vagus nerve. How can I, how can I maybe help myself? And I remembered in school in that kind of nerd thing we were talking about earlier, I remembered the lecture on the vagus nerve, the professor saying there are two parts to the vagus nerve. There's the first preganglionic portion that goes from the brain down into the chest and abdomen. Then there's a small gap or synapse. And then there's a tiny postganglionic vagus nerve. And I remembered him saying the postganglionic vagus nerve is so small, it's almost a part of the organ itself. 
Now, why I remember that, I have no idea. But I remember writing all this down, trying to memorize it. This was all new to me. And I thought, as far as I know, I still have that postganglionic nerve. How could I maybe nudge that? At the time, I was thinking my preganglionic wasn't working. It was squished. I was thinking maybe at the neck or it was damaged somehow. But I thought, well, let's let's try to nudge that one. Let's use the neurotransmitter, the chemical that nerves communicate with. And for the vagus nerve, the neurotransmitter is acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is not a drug. Uh, it breaks down immediately, so you can't use it in that way. But I also remember learning the imitators of those uh, neurotransmitters, and I thought, or what we call agonists. I thought, what is the agonist for acetylcholine at the vagus nerve? And I thought, oh, well, that's easy. The um, vagus nerve is the only nicotinic acetylcholinergic nerve in the body. And we use that term because it's agonist is nicotine. So I called my husband at the office and I had him bring home a nicotine patch. He was dying to know what the heck I was doing. I said, I'll explain when we get home, you know, but I put it where the ileocecal valve was, the lower right-hand quadrant. And I didn't know if it mattered where I put it. Um, experiment, you know, with N equals one, but by golly, hour, hour and a half later, things started moving. That valve opened. I had a normal valve movement and I continued to use that for a few days and worked just oh fine. My. So I walked away from some lessons from that and was able to go to next steps. But it was a necessary part of, of working through the problem. Well, I, there's so much there because I, you know, I want to just even back up a second and highlight the importance of bowel movements because, um, <laughs> you know, it's the digestive system and motility and uh, gut health and all of that stuff has been one of my many kind of side nerd passions. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's also just like, well, okay, well, people are like, okay, you don't have good bowel movements. What's a good bowel movement? You should definitely be having a bowel movement at least every day, right? And um, some people argue more than that is even better. Um, and most people agree less than that is not good. Um, and that then people have some kind of heuristics around what a good bowel movement is. Shouldn't be difficult uh, to get out, but also shouldn't be hard to keep in for a little bit if you need to. Um, and then... Uh, but then what people often turn to is if, okay, if I don't match these heuristics, then maybe I just need to take a probiotic or you know, maybe mm -hmm. I just need to eat more fiber or something like right. that. Right. And what right. I've seen just in my limited experience talking to people and like trying to optimize myself and things like that is that while those things can help, you know, another thing that uh, hurts is just sitting too much and not having enough physical movement, right? That right. kind of pointed me towards, okay, interesting. There's this whole kind of motility element that is almost structural in nature and not, uh, not necessarily like fiber related or bacteria related. Um, and that kind of then related later to me with nervous system function. And I got in a a car accident in 2012 and I had some whiplash in my neck and I got to learn 
unfortunately recovered, but I got to learn a lot about how the nervous system functions and impacts our organs and things like that uh, from firsthand kind of interest in the subject. And so I guess we're in a meandering way. What I'm trying to say is um, this basic function of motility is so important. And if you don't uh, evacuate, if you don't have stool, that can be a reason to go to the emergency room if it doesn't happen uh, frequently enough. Yes, you are so right. And that's interesting you mentioned your whiplash because it's oftentimes forgotten the vagus nerve communicates with the brain and of the, the state of the organs. It'll it'll tell the brain, oh, we need more bile from the gallbladder or what have you, or, or um, it's time for a bowel movement. But the communication is both directions. So when that's not working well, sometimes the brain doesn't get the signal. It doesn't, it doesn't send the signal because it doesn't know the state of the organs. And when your your bowel movements are messed up, gosh, mine were for years. Um, it wasn't just the fact things were sitting in there, which is bad enough, right? But the gallbladder, the pancreas, even stomach acid reduction wasn't optimal. So I wasn't breaking down the food properly. Then my son and I were not absorbing nutrients Mm -hmm. properly. And it wasn't just a matter of making myself have a bowel movement. Um, I was completely reliant on um, uh, laxatives for a while, but the organs had to be nudged too. And SIBO or uh, uh, dysbiosis, I had horrible candida infections for years. All that just took care of itself. Plus, it's just a party every day in the bathroom when you have a bowel movement. You don't have to make it happen. <laughs> you know? right. so, like a normal person, how great is that? And, and movement is a, a key point to the vagus nerve. So it is hard if you're bedridden or, you know, recovering from the car accident or surgery or what have you. Sometimes it just sits there and you have to nudge it along. So this is really fascinating because um, this piece of the postganglionic vagus nerve and the, uh, let's see if I can say this correctly, nicotinic cholinergic pathway um, is something that is, I think, not ma- not many people are aware of this. And like you said, you kind of dug it up from uh, some uh, corner of your memory from school uh, and then gave yeah. this nicotine patch a try. What What was, you know, obviously that was like a first step towards some relief, but then where did the story go after that? Right, because that was an incredible answer for a while. I walked away with um, a couple of messages there. One was that uh, the receptors could still receive the neurotransmitters. All the work with POTS to that point was saying, this must be an autoimmune condition and these receptors are not working. No, the receptors worked fine. Um, so that was good. It wasn't necessarily that they were shut down. We, we didn't have anything to work with. But I couldn't say still at that point, if I wanted to stay in Nerdville, mm-hmm. right, Jason, I couldn't say it was a vagus nerve problem. I could say it was either a vagus nerve problem or a neurotransmitter mm-hmm. problem. And to pick that apart, I looked at symptoms 
of anticholinergic poisoning. Basically, if someone ingests a drug that breaks down acetylcholine, they present with certain symptoms. And some are those of um, you know, constipation, low gallbladder function, et cetera, et cetera. But things like brain fog or short-term memory loss, dry eyes, large pupils, those were also occurring, but those are not involving the vagus nerve. It turned out to be, in my case, my children's case, and the case of the majority of chronic fatigue syndrome, POTS, I'm using air quotes here, you can't see fibromyalgia, whatever the heck that is, right? And interestingly, post-traumatic stress disorder. Those patients had the majority of symptoms of anticholinergic poisoning. So we knew, and then response to treatment, we knew this wasn't just a vagus nerve problem. There, there was a problem with the neurotransmitter and had to figure that out. Nicotine, although it worked with me for four days, it caused a lot of problems too. So I had to stop using it. Um, nicotine can activate uh, inflammation can activate or uh, result in higher levels of oxidation, which is very damaging. And then I was hypermobile, um, had stretchy limit uh, ligaments and tendons. It can release chemicals that elastase collagenase that can worsen that. I couldn't mm. keep using it. Uh, and so I had to work down that road to figure out where the problem was and dig deeper. So if it's an acetylcholine problem, then, okay, let's figure that out. And I started to look, is it a genetic problem with acetylcholine? Maybe maybe we have something in that pathway and tried to figure out ways around that if that was the case. And then I remember thinking, wouldn't it be something if I could come up with an oral medication or supplement that could do what nicotine did and yet cross the blood-brain barrier to support acetylcholine for the brain, to nudge the lacrimal nerve so that tear production was normalized and still get all the organs working um, and help with the inflammation. Um, so that was a goal <laughs> I had. <laughs> it took three and a half years to figure that out. <laughs> so, yeah. It sounds like a pretty typical goal, like when you talk to people that that might be, you know, one of their goals on their to-do list, right? Um, is to optimize their acetylcholine. That's right. That's right. Function, and well, let's take a, a step back real quick, just for yeah. a, a quick sidebar, and maybe you can just outline the importance sure. of and the difference between a neurotransmitter and other kind of uh, signaling pathways through the nervous system, and so. Maybe we'll like zoom out to the layman's description of why is acetylcholine important in general? And that's interesting. That's one of the most essential neurotransmitters. And it affects not just the autonomic nervous system, the system we really shouldn't have to think about, although I spent 15 years doing nothing but thinking about it. It should work all by itself. It should help with you know, uh, heart rate slowing down, breathing, calming the body, rest and digest, as we call it, every aspect of digestion, but interestingly, to help inflammation too. But it also affects the central nervous system, and that's the brain, spinal cord. Um, it's important for cognition, short-term memory, etc. And in fact, anyone 
who's starting to develop dementia of any form, the first thing doctors do is support acetylcholine. We need to be aware of that. It's also used in the peripheral nervous system and it can help control muscles. And I remember at my worst, I told my husband, this is not fatigue. I am so far beyond fatigue at this point. I said, I can hardly lift my arm. I said, if the house is on fire, it's just going to burn me because I cannot, I can't get up. And um, trying to, to explain that to the doctors where they look at it as a like, quote, chronic fatigue, um, kind right. of the eye roll, you know, that they give you. It's like, no, it can be significant. So um, it's it's such an important neurotransmitter. It's, nerves, of course, they don't attach directly to organs or to other nerves. They spit out chemicals and then those chemicals land on receptors. And that's how communication occurs. As we get older, um, acetylcholine levels start to, to go down. The release starts to go down. And Oh, people can be a little more prone to brain fog or a little more forgetful or a little more constipated or what have you. And they they tend to think, well, I'm getting older. So, of course, you know, that's just a part of getting older. It's like, no, I think we can be proactive there. And I think we should be, honestly, and not tend to blame getting old or being under mm-hmm. a lot of stress or what have you. Um, for some of that, we can support those neurotransmitters. And that's, I think, really interesting what you just hinted at there, which is that on the one hand, a lot of folks, well, everyone who's listening to this, without a doubt in my mind, can relate to the fact that we would like to remain as youthful as possible for as long as possible in our lives. And, uh, And so this is sort of like, some people pursue kind of anti-aging sort of behaviors and techniques and just in general want to be healthy and well as long as they can. And then the other side of the equation is that youthfulness is also associated with performance. And I'm not meaning to uh, to oversimplify this conversation in any way, but um, basically optimizing the function of our you know, acetylcholine and related neurotransmitter uh, activities and our nervous system in general can potentially contribute to better performance, even at higher levels of performance, um, in the same way that it helps prevent uh, loss of performance on the other end of the spectrum when we're talking about aging or brain fog and things like that, right? Absolutely. And for those checking their heart rate variability as that tends to drop, we have to keep in mind that, of course, there's the balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And say in my extreme case, the doctors were trying to drug down that sympathetic override. Um, but no one, but no one had ever tried to support or even considered that maybe my parasympathetic nervous system was underperforming. And now I can do that easily. Uh, it took both. And, and that was an important part of that. So trying to figure out an oral supplement to do that, what's now called Parasym Plus, it was really a new discovery. No one had ever tried to support acetylcholine in a way that would still trigger that postganglionic nerve. And 
in the studies we did, we were looking for a bowel movement. We were, I wanted to make sure I had triggered that nerve. And the only way I could be sure was if we got a bowel movement. It was an interesting journey though, because at the end of the studies, we realized, oh, look, the dry eyes are gone. <laughs> it was, um, the brain fog was gone. <laughs> that was extraordinary. But, um, but absolutely, having been as sick as I was, Jason, and having lost my mind and not only my body, it was it was like visiting Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, whatever. It was being at literally death's door and being sucked out of that and put into normalcy. I have no plans of, of allowing that to happen again if there's anything I can do. So people don't have to be sick like I was to be able to benefit from that. Um, the support I got by keeping on top of acetylcholine is, was amazing. Even for years, I continued to improve. Um, and I, so I love cool. the kind of how you tied in. You had this primary goal that was obviously very motivating. Um, and uh, then you experienced these side effects of doing these trials and or you were able to witness side effects as well. And I, you know, if I can relate this to a, a less extreme but was important to me story at the time is that in my early 20s, I started to realize that there was something wrong with why I was exercising a lot, lifting weights and eating tons of calories and never gaining any muscle. You know, as oh. a young man, I was kind of a skinny kid and I was always sort of self-conscious about being skinny and wanted to put on some muscle and I was trying really hard to do it following the recommendations that people were saying would do it. And it just wasn't happening. And then I made some significant shifts in my lifestyle, including really kind of cleaning up inflammatory uh, habits that I had, such as eating certain processed foods and um, and becoming aware of stress and sleep and some of those important factors. And I was able to uh, really pretty rapidly put on some more muscle right after that. It was a, it was a life-changing experience from that per regard. But then I didn't even expect this, but all of a sudden it seemed like my energy levels were restored. Like I thought it was normal for everyone, at least my age or whatever, to want to fall asleep during school or at work. And, uh, and then also... Um, have this greater mental clarity that emerged from that. So lifting of some brain fog and a lot of other kind of side benefits. And I, I fully believe that because this is my N equals one story, I could not be performing at the level I'm performing today with a baby and a, a new home and a business and keeping up with my fitness and stress and hiring and all these things. If I hadn't addressed some of those uh, inflammatory lifestyle behavior issues that I had in my early 20s. And again, this is my N equals one kind of like less extreme version of the story. But um, I'm interested to hear how how you evolved from the nicotine patch um, because I, I often talk on this show and with others about doing things with diet, doing things with exercise and stress management and things like that. But um, it sounds like you've got some extra tools in your toolkit here. Right. Well, I had to come up with extra <laughs> because I guess um, 
my challenge was that genetically I was very prone to some rather extreme inflammation. And one clue I had that um, it was beyond what I was able to get on top of, okay, was that my vagus nerve had always worked by itself before I got sick, Mm -hmm. that something was interfering with it. And um, I'd always been a huge exerciser. My my, uh, diet was great. It was bigger than that for me. And um, I knew that I needed help with this ocean. And if I could get help with the ocean, I could do my part with a teaspoon. So part of that was I didn't know where the acetylcholine went. It took me a long time to work through that. But for people who are dealing with uh, interruption of the vagus nerve, say, in in a way that they're not necessarily able to get enough results by taking care of their vagus nerve or by meditating or even some people gargle or whatever, then if the acetylcholine is either not getting produced not getting released, which was my case, or is getting broken down somehow, then we can support it. We need to bring that back in. Uh, I was looking for something that I couldn't wait for a new drug, you know, going through this. So I really wanted it to be an oral supplement mix, if at all possible. And then looking for a bowel movement, considering the genetics of it. And again, that's just the cross I have to bear. My genetics are horrible, Jason. I think I probably should have died five times over by now. And if I hadn't gotten some answers, that probably wouldn't have been the case. So some of us have some genetic challenges that can set us up for some real failure. And um, again, that was that was my case. It was interesting, too, working through this, working past that nicotine patch, was that I tended to be real sensitive. And I was sensitive to medicines, the environment, um, supplements, you name it, stress. I couldn't handle any stress. I was just sensitive to everything. So another goal I had, excuse me, trying to work this through was to figure out what is the least amount of something that, that I could use to come together to stimulate the nerve and to support acetylcholine for the other systems of the body, no more than what we need. It needed to be super pure because when we have problems with the vagus nerve, we're not good at controlling inflammation. That's the anti-inflammatory nerve. So how ironic is it that some aspects of inflammation can block the release of acetylcholine? then that nerve starts to shut down and then the inflammation goes even higher. So we start circling the drain, if you will. Um, So the mix of ingredients was really important to me too. So imagine me in my kitchen trying to use my ancient organic chemistry knowledge to figure this out and put it together in a way that would do the trick without being any more of anything than what we needed, giving it to my son and I to try to get uh, that nerve to work again and still cross the blood-brain barrier. His story, I mean, there's some overlap. It's kind of interesting because in my son's recovery, uh, he got extraordinarily thin, right? He was, again, he was just wasting away. Um, but once POTS was gone and he had the tools he needed, then trying to 
bulk up. I remember him saying, you wanted to start dating. And he said, nobody's going to want to date this. You know, you want to start lifting weights. And I was terrified because uh, he had osteoporosis for so long. But part of his journey sounds a little bit like what you went through. He did have to learn how to, to eat right and take good care of himself. He still needed to support the vagus nerve. He still needed Parasim Plus regularly. And that's likely because of the genetics he was working against, much like mine. But then he could evolve to then the muscle cane. And um, that was kind of cool to watch and very exciting as a mom to see such a dramatic recovery. So it, it did take everything. Everyone's challenges are different. And you had mentioned invisible illness when we were first on. Ours was considered invisible because no one was really looking at neurology and a lot of this. And some of the other things we found um, were not easy to figure out either. But um, the nervous system, oftentimes we don't have blood tests for a lot of this. And if we're set up genetically where it's going to fail, we want to do what we can do to support it. And we should. And it can help us not only in recovery from rather dramatic illness, but then improve the quality of our life throughout our lives, which is certainly a goal now. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's as as a, as a species and we're filling in the edges of the map and we're creating these amazing technologies and, um, you know, in many cases kind of making life more convenient and things like that. A lot of people are really now focusing on quality of life and quality of the time that we have right on this, on this rock. Right. And, uh, and so I think everyone can kind of relate to that notion. And sometimes we can all learn from other people's more extreme examples. Um, but right. for those of us that are just trying to lead the best life we can, it, there's things that we can learn from that. Yes, absolutely. It's um, it's so that the the theme of inflammation is really interesting too, because inflammation can come from so many sources, um, and it can be addressed in so many different ways. Um, and this the concept of invisible illness is really interesting too, because uh, you know, I we kind of touched on this a little bit, but what is what is POTS really, right? It's, it's, uh, you can explain it better than me. So I'm, I'm not going to even try. Oh. <laughs> well, POTS is, POTS is a symptom, right? I think I remember celebrating when I got that, <clears throat> excuse me, when I got that diagnosis thinking, finally, I've got, you know, a firm answer. We know what this is and now they'll know what to do. But POTS being basically postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome should mean when you stand up, your heart rate goes faster. Well, that's not a condition. That's a symptom. And what is that a symptom of? And that's very difficult to figure out. That's what we do here at POTS Care. But no one was really interested in my journey in figuring out the causes of that, which was extraordinarily frustrating. Um, you had mentioned, and I, I find this so interesting, the inflammation and chronic inflammation and how we get to chronic inflammation and what it can cause and in my case ultimately uh, pods but it's 
something that we don't measure routinely. We don't measure inflammatory cytokines routinely. Uh, you almost have to be in research at this point to do that. That was part of some of the studies I did in looking for answers. But inflammatory cytokines do tend to go up as we age. They go up if we're ill or injured or have whiplash, like in your case, or what have you. Interestingly, athletes suffer from a fair amount of inflammation. As an athlete, say if you use heavy weights or whatever to build more muscle, you're tearing that muscle down, right? And the inflammation is necessary to do that. Then you build more muscle and the inflammation goes away. But some uh, very proactive athletes, uh, triathletes, for example, or people who just hit it really hard, they can develop chronic inflammation like Ironman competitions, what have you. And that starts to work against them. If they take anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen or whatever, it can actually uh, interfere with the ability of their body to build stronger muscle. They need some inflammation. So it's tricky. It's, it's sometimes why you see in some of those athletes a propensity <clears throat> for constipation, oh, that uh, inflammation can block that acetylcholine release. So to help the body with that inflammation without resorting to anti-inflammatories, you need the vagus nerve. And it's very ironic that the vagus nerve starts to shut down in times of that chronic inflammation. So um, we can support that vagus nerve. They can stay on top of the inflammation without drugs to bring it down. And that was, again, part of the journey in figuring out what happened to us. It was, quote, invisible because no one was measuring those um, those cytokines. But someday that'll be different, Jason. And and a lot of us, quote, invisible illness people won't be invisible anymore. It'll, it'll be routine. Or as we get older, doctors will say, well, let's measure your inflammatory cytokines mm -hmm. and see how you're doing. <laughs> so meanwhile, we have to be proactive and it's it's a matter of taking our own health in hands because it isn't something that can be routinely ordered, which is frustrating to me. Someday it won't be so hard, but right now it is hard. And um, as patients, a lot of us get missed because they're not able to measure that. Um, but it'll get easier. Mm -hmm, definitely. And, you know, it's it's an exciting time in a way to be uh, able to be contributing to this uh, concept of bringing self-awareness and um, shedding light on invisible or previously invisible situations. Um, and, you know, one book comes to mind, Epidemic of Absence, um, mm -hmm. which is uh, talks a lot about autoimmune conditions and how um, mm -hmm. those often kind of fly under the radar and that more people around us have them than one might think. Um, yes. and that kind of strikes a similar chord to me. Um, and then right. the, the side effect for me of getting into heart rate variability, um, has been that, you know, I've brought a tool to the world that made it a lot easier to measure HRV, um, anytime, anywhere and more accessible. And I started getting all of these messages back from people using it and discovering, all sorts of new things about themselves that, you know, if I, I'm being completely open that I didn't really even know that, that, that they were going to be able to do that with the tool that I was making. Right. So, 
Isn't that it great? Is. It's uh it's a great uh, amazing learning opportunity for me. And um and I kind of mentioned to you before the show that we've seen in the last two years, especially an increase in the number of people who have POTS symptoms that have found benefit in measuring their HRV just to get an idea of um, what's going on day to day, what things sort of kind of seem to be increasing or decreasing inflammation or increasing or decreasing certain nervous system activity, and that they found benefit in being able to do that more regularly. So the the measurement tools are starting to become available uh, for a lot of these invisible illnesses. And there's still some learning. There's still a lot of learning, rather, for all of us to do. Um, but the ability to self-experiment can, can help quite a bit. Oh, absolutely. And it is so awesome to have something objective, like the heart rate variability that can reassure you it's not all in my head. This can actually measure some things. And um, that's why it seemed obvious to me when we opened POTS Care that we needed to measure this in everyone. I was really excited, though, that um, there was a publication just recently, what, a month or two ago, on POTS patients showing the heart rate variability was low. <laughs> I thought that seemed obvious mm-hmm. to me, but I was glad that something objective again because as a quote invisible illness patient we know it's difficult to figure these things out and to have something objective like that um, is so helpful we also can look at pupil size this is something um, when someone's dramatically affected by the parasympathetic nervous system going down or the sympathetic going up their pupils will tend to get bigger and as an eye doctor Again, that seemed seemed obvious to me to measure those. And POTS patients tend to have extraordinarily large pupils. So if you take those measurements, because we're dramatic patients, right, and turn them down, though, then you can apply it to a, quote, normal population. Because the normal population can also deal with inflammation for many reasons. And they can be proactive by keeping a close eye on things like heart rate variability and make sure they're having normal bowel movements and and brain fog. And um, it's just so great to have something to measure until we can measure inflammatory cytokines regularly. At least we have that. And we've really enjoyed doing that. Well, that's huge. And um, I think what we should do now is I think we've got a lot of information to digest. And I want to pick your brain on one last uh, line of thinking here. And that is going to lead us to a good uh, conclusion of also how, you know, what is Parasim Plus, but what are kind of your top practical tips for starting to make progress uh, towards um, either, we talked a little bit about measuring already with heart rate variability and things like that, um, but more along the lines of doing some N equals one experimentation on improving your vagus nerve function um, and inflammation levels. Yeah, I think if people could take a look and see, is this just a vagus nerve problem? Like did the vagus nerve get damaged, for example, um, in which case it would affect 
depending on the location of the damage, the organs in either the chest or the, the gut or both. But is it a vagus nerve problem per se, or is it an acetylcholine problem per se? And for that, you have to think more globally. So you look at pupil size, dry eyes, uh, brain fog, flushing, mood disorders, appetite dysregulation, that sort of thing. Those move beyond the vagus nerve. That will help guide them. There are a lot of people that just assume it's a vagus nerve problem, and if all they're doing is trying to support that nerve, they're going to be left uh, not doing as well. So I think that's important, and that's what really helped get us answers. With Parison Plus, you can have a damaged nerve, it doesn't matter. We're working around that. We're either going for the postganglionic vagus nerve or the receptor itself. You could have a genetic problem with acetylcholine. It doesn't matter. I put the work-ins right in there for that. It will cross the blood-brain barrier, so we can use it just purely for cognition if we want. But it will support the vagus nerve, the anti-inflammatory nerve. And since we need that, especially as we age, if we're exercising, we have to control some of that abnormal inflammation. I'm excited about that. Once you know you've got all that in place, then take good care of yourself, right? To do the things that you had recommended where it's watching your sleep and, and your diet, et cetera, because the quality of life can go straight up. Um, but without that working, it sets us up for failure and people can work out or or try to eat right or try to meditate and they, they just can't get there. And that was the case in, in, in my own illness. So it, it can absolutely come together and we can move past quite a few things as I did. And as old as I am and as sick as I got, um, I really want to offer hope to those people suffering with something invisible. And for the people who are doing well and just want to be better, I am right there with them because I want to continue to be proactive. I never want to go back to where I was before. And I think we have the opportunity to do that. And thank you. Yeah, that's, 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 this has been an amazing journey story as well as so much to learn from. And I think one of the kind of final takeaways that I have from what you just said is that, uh, me included, I'm a big proponent of addressing sort of the basics uh, for everyone, like, you know, keep an eye on your nutrition, try to uh, decrease inflammatory foods and increase nutritious foods and, um, you know, address sleep, try to get as much good sleep as you can, quality and quantity, manage stress, you know, move your body regularly, all of these things. But there is also something to be said where it's like pushing a boulder up a mountain uh, if you're being held back by, you know, neurotransmitter dysfunction or vagus nerve uh, dysfunction um, and things in the system that either through acute or chronic uh, situations have become uh, depleted or, or dysfunctional to the point where it's really difficult to fix them just through doing normal lifestyle changes. And uh, like you said, and a lot of times when this happens is if you go to the traditional medical route, it's like, well, let's cut out an organ or let's, um, you know, just um, put, give you something to mask the symptoms. And again, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying all medical practices are this way. And I'm not saying that there's nothing beneficial from that, uh, 
from going the traditional medical route, but um, there may be some options to kind of kickstart the system, so to speak, um, making all those other efforts a lot pay off a lot more. So you're pushing maybe a boulder along a flat ground instead of up a mountain. <laughs> That's right. That's an excellent analogy. <laughs> well, um, Dr. Diana, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I think uh, that we'll be connecting again over many more topics. But in the meantime, where can people find more information about you or about your work? Um, yes, I am at POTS Care now. All we do is see POTS patients. So POTS, POTSCare.com. The uh, supplement that was patented for all this is called Parison Plus. That's at VegasNerveSupport.com. Uh, I put out a book years ago where I was starting to get answers on POTS. called it The Driscoll Theory, and that's available. Um, I had a blog when I was sick and put out videos uh, just really wanted to share with other people, this is bad and this is real. It's called prettyill.com, but that book is available there. And I've had a forum on there for many years where I jump on and answer questions at no charge. So I am uh, probably best found at one of those places. Perfect. And, and we will um, post links to those on the show notes at as the, at the usual place, which is elitehrv.com slash podcast. But um, this has been a very enlightening conversation for me. And there, like I said, and I was, uh, my kind of nerdy hopes at the beginning of the episode was, were fulfilled because I learned some things that I didn't know as well. And <laughs> And I think that everyone listening will be able to take something away from this. And uh, I encourage anyone who has more questions or thoughts to uh, go check out Dr. Diana's work at her at the sites she listed at the links we provide. And um, thank you so much, uh, Diana, for your time. Thank you, Jason. You keep doing what you're doing. You're helping so many and take good care of that baby. <laughs> Definitely. That's priority one. <laughs> That's right. Okay. The Elite Academy now offers in-depth online courses on multiple subjects. So if you're enjoying the content of this podcast, but you're looking for a more structured and logical progression, looking at the science and application of these subjects, check out the Elite Academy at EliteHRV.com slash academy.